Hello and welcome to LiveWise Rules of Investing. I'm Ali Selby and if there's one request that we hear time and time again from our audience, it's that you want more content on the wonderful, often undercovered world of microcaps. So today we're joined by Jessica Farr-Jones. Jess is the Portfolio Manager of the Regal Emerging Company Strategy. This is a wholesale strategy, but it's also a core component of the Regal Listed Investment Trust, RF1. Jess's expertise covers everything from pre-IPO opportunities to listed microcaps. So when it comes to the micro end of the market, she's definitely your girl. She's worked under investing great Phil King for the last five years and before that worked for the likes of JP Morgan in investment banking. If the last name sounds familiar, yes, she's the daughter of Wallaby's great Nick Farr-Jones, who now also works in funds management as a mining specialist. Today, Jess will be sharing why she is feeling bullish about the opportunity in small and micro caps, the areas of the market she is avoiding, as well as some of the stocks that have her excited today. Plus, we'll also be providing a deep dive of what small and micro cap investors can expect this reporting season. If you're an Apple podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a LiveWire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to get notified whenever we post content. Not a LiveWire subscriber yet? What are you doing? Head over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free to sign up and you'll get access to the leading investment minds from Australia and abroad. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jess. I'm really excited for this chat. Thanks, Ali. It's uh, great to be here. I'm a big fan of Livewire content. So um, yeah, it's great to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, you can come on anytime you like. <laughs> 2022 was obviously a difficult year for smaller micro cats. A contributor on Livewire described the 24% fall of the S&P ASX Emerging Companies Index as a killing field. That said, the index has rebounded, albeit slightly, since the beginning of the year. Is the worst of the pain over for microcap investors? You're right. 2022 was a very brutal year for microcap investors. I think one of the hardest things was that it was quite indiscriminate. A lot of stocks traded down. There were only very small pockets of outperformance last year in areas such as energy, um, coal miners and lithium miners. But otherwise, what we really saw was a 2000, year 2000 style reversal of uh, loss making technology companies, which took a lot of the market down with them. So, you know, stocks traded basically last year on the outlook for inflation and interest rates, as opposed to on their fundamental underlying performance and earnings. Thankfully, though, we have seen a bit of a reversal start. So is the worst of the pain over for microcap investors? We don't like to predict the macro necessarily and market moves. We're we're bottom-up stock pickers, but I can say we're very bullish about the outlook for microcaps and small caps from here. You know, the reason for that is that microcaps are high-risk, high-reward opportunities. That means when the market is risk-on, they will outperform. Conversely, when the market is risk-off, like we saw last year, they will underperform. That's why last year they traded down 24%, while the um, ASX 200 only traded off 5%. And that's, again, why we saw in 2021 they were up over 40%, while the ASX 200 was up only 13%. So basically, if this rally that we've seen at the start of the year can continue... It has to broaden to other sectors and it has to broaden to micro and small caps. There's a lot of catch up that they have to do, but we've seen that in the last couple of months. The index in Australia is up 3% year to date, but it was actually up 4% in July. 
And the Russell 2000 index in the US has also started rallying um, and in the last two months has outperformed the S&P 500. So we think that hopefully this soft landing scenario can play out, earnings can hold up, the bull market can continue, and that means that micro and small caps need to probably aggressively rally from here to play catch up. I don't know about some of our listeners, but there's some stocks that have rallied incredibly hard since the beginning of the year, and I feel like I've almost missed out. Do you think that's the case? Yeah, so that's what's really interesting. The index is up 3% for the year. So you'd think not much has happened, but that is completely wrong. What we've seen this year is huge dispersion. Um, And I actually looked into it recently. You know, there's a bit under 200 constituents in the Emerging Companies Index. There's about 61 stocks that are up this year and 115 that are down. So what that means is about a third of the index has gone up and two thirds has gone down. And this is why the rally so far hasn't been particularly broad based. You know, most of these micro caps have been selling off. That's why a lot of commentators in the market have been wary of the rally this year, calling it a dead cap bounce for a long Mm. time because it wasn't a broad based rally. And what's really interesting is among the winners um, in the small cap index, you know, names like um, LRS and Avita. Some of these companies are up over 300 and 200% year to date. Yeah. The average winner in that bucket of 61 stocks is up 50% year to date. So really strong performance. Yeah. And then the losers though, that 115 stocks that have gone down, the average decline is 25% and some of them are down more than 70%. So we've seen this very wildly divergent performance this year of microcaps. There's a lot that are up a lot. And then there's even more that are down quite a lot. Um, And that's kind of the ideal environment for stock pickers, like long short stock pickers in particular like Regal, but for stock pickers in general, because that's where you can try to get alpha from picking the winners from the losers. As opposed to last year, where there was just a really high degree of correlation and basically everything went down. Just on that, Jess, where are you finding value right now? Where do you think we'll see the next leg up from here? So, so far, what we've seen this year is basically mean reversion. Um, The sectors that performed really badly last year have done well this year. And and conversely, the winners from last year have typically performed badly. So the e-commerce companies that got obliterated last year are having a great year. You know, companies like Setar, Kogan, Redbubble, and then the consumer discretionary stocks last year that did well with the COVID reopening have done terribly this year on concerns about a potential recession. And we have seen those companies... um, you know, suffer downgrades recently, but they have started to rally off the lows. And that's exactly what we need to see if we are kind of coming out of this tougher consumer period. Um, And if the rally is going to continue, I do think that, you know, consumer discretionary stocks have to rally as well at the end of the day. The healthcare sector's done quite well this year. Biotech's again got obliterated in the 2022 drawdown. So it's good to see some of those names up this year. Interestingly, In the micro cap end of the market, the tech subsector is only up 2%. And that was surprising to me when I looked into it because a lot of the tech stocks have rallied really hard. You know, the NASDAQ is up almost 40% this year, high 30s. So we've seen the mega caps rally and then a lot of the larger tech stocks in Australia like Xero, WiseTech, et cetera, perform extremely well. But the micro caps haven't rallied really yet. And the reason for that is that... These are the um, technology companies that usually have, they're less established, less of a moat and often still burning money. So investors are a lot more selective now. It's not like in 2021 where you would buy any tech company with high growth, even if it was burning a lot of cash. 
technology is back in vogue, but profitable technology basically is back in vogue. So we haven't seen actually a lot of the technology micro caps catch a bid yet. And then miners, there's a lot of dispersion in that sector. You know, that index is down a little bit this year, given commodity prices have been weak and, and given on fears of a global recession and a Chinese slowdown. But looking forward, as I mentioned before, if you take the view that this rally is going to continue, we expect to see cyclicals um, re-rate from here. So you would expect commodity prices to eventually improve if the economy, global economies can do well. China is an important part of that, which is looking tough, but we'll see what happens with the stimulus there. But you would expect commodity prices to improve, miners and other cyclical companies to improve, hopefully consumer discretionary and those kind of areas that have been impacted can start to improve too. And you'll just get much more of a broad-based rally. What you usually see in true bull markets is about 75% of constituents kind of go up. And as I said before, in the micro caps this year, only about a third of the index has gone up. So we'd expect to see a lot more sectors participate on the upside going forward in this if this bull market can continue. Can you take us through some of the stocks that you are liking within those sectors? So tech, um, cyclicals and consumer discretionary? Yeah, sure. On the tech side, uh, a large core holding for Regal for a long time has been a company called Life360. So we actually owned this um, before the IPO. The fund that I help manage can invest in both listed and unlisted companies. And so we thought this was a really attractive opportunity back in 2018. And, And we've owned it ever since, and it's still a core holding. What we really like about this stock is that, and sorry for context, what it does is it's a market-leading family safety app. Um, So it helps parents know where their kids are at all times. Um, It sends them driving reports, for example, to make sure that they're driving safely. It sends help notifications. It assists with um, identity theft protection. It's got an amazing product suite that they're continuing to build out. Why we like it is the market leader. It's got more than 50 million monthly active users. It is growing organically very strongly. And also it's entered that period of now being sustainably cash flow and EBITDA positive. As I mentioned before, that's a key differentiation that the market is making between technology stocks that have great business models and can you know, be self-funding and cash flow positive and those that continue to need to come to the public markets and, and raise capital because they're burning money. Mm. Um, it's got an amazing international expansion opportunity. It's a founder-led business. Uh, there's a huge opportunity in bundling the product with Tile going yeah. forward, which is a competitor to the AirTag. So we just think all the building blocks are in place for that company now to compound earnings at a very high rate over the next few years. They've guided to medium-term um, EBITDA margins of 25 to 30%. So, wow. you know, look, of course, there's always competitive threats, but at the moment, they're the market leader and we think the building blocks are in place there for it to do well. How about miners and also consumer discretionary stocks? We think miners are inexpensive. You know, they're cyclical companies, but they can do really well if this bull market broadens and commodity prices improve. And there's some really interesting microcap miners that are making some really exciting discoveries. So some names that we've had exposure to this year that we really like are ones like WA1 Resources, which has discovered a world-class niobium deposit in WA. 
um, and that's used for strengthening steel uh, and lightweight vehicles. Another example that we've been exposed to is um, a company called Latin Resources, LRS. That stock has gone off this year. Look, My I have God. to give the credit to our mining team. Um, they picked this one really well. We participated in a placement earlier in this year. And yeah, it's the top performing company in the Emerging Companies Index. So far this year, it's up 300% year to date. But they still really like that. You know, it's got, they've discovered a world-class high-grade lithium resource over in Brazil and there are comps like Sigma that actually continue to make it look inexpensive um, relative to where it is today. And we think that they'll continue to be resource upgrades throughout the year. So those are two that we still continue to like and we think are really interesting discoveries. You did mention at the start of the podcast that you feel like there could be a leg up from here in consumer discretionary. How are you dipping your toe into that area of the market? You're right that it's an area that we have largely avoided throughout Regal over the past 12 months. We have been very cautious about that part of the market. And, you know, to a large extent, it has played out. And a lot of those companies have reported very weak trading um, over the last six months in particular. So it was good to avoid that part of the market. We have seen only in the last month or two, those stocks start to outperform as uh, fears about the consumer recession reduce. It's not an overweight part of our portfolio today. I'd say that what we're doing is really just dipping our toe in the water um, with tactical opportunities. You know, you, you can get good companies in this sector, but the business models in retail, especially brick and mortar retail, I think are not necessarily always as high quality as certain other business models that you may find in areas such as tech or healthcare. And so, you know, do I really want to have a big overweight position in some of these companies for five years? No. Is there a tactical opportunity in the short term? Probably. Although we do obviously still need to, it is still contingent on the consumer holding up. Um, There's definitely a lag with monetary policy and interest rate hikes. So, It all looks okay today. I think ultimately it will come down to unemployment. The consumers should be fine as long as unemployment doesn't spike and we're still at record lows for unemployment. So that is an area that's been hit significantly, um, so can definitely rebound with the cyclicals. One area on consumer, though, that we do like is e-commerce and in particular a stock called Setire because most other e-commerce companies are you know, only focused on the domestic market, but Setire has a really enormous international opportunity. It's, I think it, you know, operates in over 50 economies at the moment, 50 different countries, um, and a really enormous growing TAM being the global luxury market and the online segment of that market. So the total market is growing at about 6 to 7% a year, but the online segment of that market is growing at more like 30% a year as the online takes share away from you know, the traditional brick and mortar retailing side. It's a founder led business growing very rapidly. Um, The last print that we got was in April. The business at the top line was growing 160% year on year and profitable. It's going to generate about probably $30 million of EBITDA this year, uh, which is a big turnaround from losing about $20 million of EBITDA last year. And they sit at the bottom of the cost curve. um, So they will always have an advantage relative to brick and mortar retailers, but also some of their competitors like Farfetch who have a much higher fulfillment cost per order. 
Okay. I want to look at the other side of that. What areas, obviously you can't tell us about the names that you're shorting right now, but could you take us through some of the areas that you're avoiding or just give, I guess, a little overview of what you're you're finding unattractive or where you're finding shorting opportunities right now? Yeah, absolutely. So I already mentioned that, you know, we did avoid consumer discretionary stocks a lot over the last 12 months. Um, The other area that we've really avoided is companies with bad balance sheets. So, any company that has a lot of debt, especially micro caps with a lot of debt, that's usually not a good recipe. Most micro caps don't really have a business model that supports, because they're earlier stage, they don't really yet have the capacity to take on a lot of debt. And I've seen that be the downfall of a lot of micro caps is having too much debt. So yeah, we're definitely avoiding anything that is burning too much money and needs to rely on the capital markets to sustain themselves because they're not free cash flow positive. So anything burning a lot of money, anything with a bad balance sheet and a lot of debt. What percentage of the micro cap universe would look like that? (laughs) (laughs) So a very high percentage, and I don't have these stats for you, would be loss making. Um, The micro caps report quarterly cash flows and four Cs. So we had them all report last week at the end of July. And yes, I mean, look, there's definitely companies that in this new era where money's not free and capital's not freely available, are prioritising cost cutting and absolutely moving to profitability. We've seen that a lot. But simultaneously, there's still a lot of micro caps that are constantly reliant on the capital markets. They raise every six to 12 months. It's quite easy to anticipate those raises because of the quarterly cash flow reporting. And typically, they're the kind of stocks that we will avoid or, or sometimes short. And finally, obviously, if there's companies that we believe are not doing well fundamentally, their earnings might be going backwards. We think there's a risk that they're going to miss consensus expectations or guidance. We'll obviously avoid those. Um, And then any micro caps that have management teams that might be a bit promotional or a bit overly optimistic, which in the past has caused them to downgrade or miss, you know, you want to back good management teams and conservative management teams. So we're also looking to avoid those kind of stocks. Okay, you kind of talked through there some of the attributes of, I guess, the lemons of the small cap market. Do it successful micro and small caps have something in common? Any factors or attributes that you look for? Absolutely. The stocks that we look for, obviously, are ones that we think that can compound at high rates and grow to become the next generation of market leaders. So often some of the best performing micro caps have common characteristics. These are typically things like excellent growth rates, great business models, you know, things like high margins and high returns on invested capital, um, clear competitive advantages and moats versus their competitors, large addressable markets. We love that. We love global opportunities as well, not just domestic opportunities. Uh, And then great management teams like founder-led management teams. Um, And then obviously we like management teams that put out conservative guidance so that this can consistently be beaten. What we see is those companies that are conservative and beat, they tend to trade on a much higher multiple um, over time than companies that are less conservative. What I would also say is, obviously, ideally, we like to buy micro caps that are attractively priced from a valuation perspective. But the only thing I would say is that Micro caps are a little bit different to mid caps and large caps when it comes to that. And the multiple at which is trading is actually not the best indicator of future performance. 
um, as some people might expect. Mm. So as I mentioned before, a lot of these companies might be loss making or burning money. So the multiple might appear very high, but often these companies are reinvesting their profits um, in order to aggressively grow and take market share. So sometimes focusing on an earnings multiple is not always going to be the best indicator of whether you should buy a company or not. Really interestingly, some of the best performers always trade at high multiples and continue to trade at high multiples because they're the market leading stocks. And the laggards trade at poor multiples. They often are value traps and perform badly. So what I would say is absolutely, it's ideal if all those fundamentals fall together and we can also buy it on 10 to 20 times EBITDA, like that's awesome. Doesn't always happen, but I would say that because the key driver of stock prices is earnings momentum rather than the multiple, it's been shown statistically over time that what generates the market's returns are dividends and earnings growth, not so much multiples going up or down. So if you can mainly focus on buying good companies and not at unreasonable prices, but, you know, at prices that may still seem expensive, my view is that often those are the micro caps that can continue to go well and the ones that you want to own. The fund also invests in unlisted companies and pre-IPO opportunities. Why invest in that area of the market? Yep. We are looking to invest in the great companies that I mentioned before, but before they become public. Um, and there's a few reasons for this. You know, there's obviously a lot of great companies that aren't yet listed. So our universe is much bigger of investable opportunities. You know, the other reason is we can get set in these companies before they IPO and we can typically invest at much better valuations than what they're going to trade at when they get to the public markets. Um, There is quite a big illiquidity discount and for good reason when you can't trade, actively trade unlisted companies. And so what that means is you're typically seeing quite a large increase in the valuation of the company as they become listed and IPO. So we're looking to back companies that we really like and we want to own more of when they get to the IPO. Often we're the cornerstone investor in the IPO, but we're looking to back them earlier in their life cycle. We get to know management, we form really good relationships with the companies and know more about that company as well, frankly, than all the other investors who are meeting them the first time at the IPO roadshow. Are there any risks involved with that? Obviously, you talked about liquidity, but is there a chance? There there absolutely is risks. You don't get um, reward and return without risk at the end of the day, of course. So, yeah, liquidity is an issue, especially, obviously, in markets like we're in today where the IPO window is largely closed. You know, it's it's not always ideal not being able to trade that part of the portfolio. Um, but that's, you know, the quid pro quo for what we saw in 2021, where the IPO window was wide open, a huge amount of our portfolio got listed and performed extremely well and generated really great returns for the fund. Um, but absolutely, there are risks, to your point. One of the key ones, I think, is disclosure. You know, one of the great things and things that investors can take comfort in with publicly listed stocks is there's very strict rules that the ASX holds you to around continuous disclosure, audited numbers, everything like that. And so there's a high degree of confidence that investors can take from that. A lot of the unlisted companies we look at, they provide us with management accounts. They're not necessarily audited. Um, There's a different level of corporate governance and a different level of disclosure. Absolutely, it's a risk. And, you know, we have uh, had you know, investments go against us in the past, of course, um, as anyone would investing in that part of the market. But thankfully, um, you know, it's been a source of really great returns for the fund overall, because 
in bull markets and periods where the IPO windows are open, you can make really great returns from investing in that part of the market. Mm. Obviously, reports can be misleading even in the listed market. I want to talk about reporting season now. What do you think investors can expect? Broadly, um, I hope that we'll have a positive reporting season. You know, inevitably, there's always companies that um, beat and miss. But, um, you know, I'm hopeful that we can have a continuation of what we've seen so far, I guess, across the US and Australia, which is, you know, we're not really getting those earnings downgrades, apart from small pockets, like we've seen in consumer discretionary. um, Otherwise, things are holding up really well and better than expected, which is why I think the market has started rallying and, and can continue to rally. That's a broad statement, but, you know, we, we don't focus on the broad market. We're stock pickers. So, we're, we, you know, we're invested in individual companies and looking to monitor those companies. And, and at the end of the day, I can't tell you exactly what all the companies in the index are going to do, but I hope that, you know, the companies that we're invested in can report well. You know, what we're looking for is things like beating guidance or consensus. We're looking for strong revenue growth, strong earnings growth, upbeat commentary, guidance outlook that's positive and good balance sheets at the end of the day. But what's going to drive the share prices going up or down on the day is obviously how they perform relative to expectations and what's priced in. So you really have to think about what's priced in and how they're going to perform relative to that. Negative signals absolutely are the inverse of that. You know, if you're missing guidance or consensus, the business might be going backwards Selective reporting or emissions, I think, is is always a key one. If there's something that the company, a metric the company used to report that they're no longer reporting because it might not present the business in a favourable light, any accounting irregularities or normalisations, which are intended to make the numbers look better than they actually are. And then, of course, bad balance sheets and risk of capital raising. I think it's very hard for stocks to go up if they need to raise capital. And so the the quicker they do that and get, you know, that issue off the table, you know, the better it is for the stock price. Are there any companies that you're watching in particular? Yeah, obviously two that I've mentioned already, um, Life360 and and Setire are key positions for the fund. We're looking for, you know, key metrics like um, revenue growth, cash flow and EBITDA numbers, commentary around the rest of the year, any guidance commentary, comments around any international expansion, the market is very forward-looking, so what I would say is that the numbers in FY23 are relevant, but what's far more relevant to these stock prices is what commentary they can give about the outlook. Mm. Do you think we'll be there'll be some reports that don't have those outlook statements? I remember we had that maybe at the beginning of the year or at the middle of last year. Definitely, yeah. But in the past, you know, companies when there was so much uncertainty found, found it very hard to give guidance and outlooks. Um, what I think is we usually get them around AGM season when mm. there's been a few months of trading into the year. So we'll we'll get a few statements about the outlook in the FY23 results, and then we'll probably get more numbers around forecasts and guidance um, in the AGM season later in the year. Okay, so would that be a red flag if a company didn't put out an outlook statement? It can be for sure, but I would also say that sometimes boards and management teams are conservative and if they genuinely, you know, if businesses are growing fast and different things are happening, it can genuinely be very hard to forecast the future with a high level of accuracy and that particularly applies to micro caps. So I would expect 
the ASX 100 or 200 to absolutely be able to give guidance. They're more mature businesses with a higher level of predictability um, to their revenue and earnings. But honestly, for microcaps, I empathise with those teams. <laughs> it can be very hard to predict. And so trying to give numbers that are inherently a bit uncertain. Yeah, I, I understand that. Uh, so it's a bit case by case. Okay, we've come to the end of the podcast. So we always ask a few questions to our guests. It's a bit of fun. It's a bit of a thought experiment. Could you share with us a story of a big win or a big loss from your investing career? What happened? What was the lesson from that? Absolutely. One big winner was Satire, but I won't touch too much on it because I've already spoken about it. But that was a good one and an interesting one because we invested at the IPO at 50 cents. Within a year, it went to almost $5. Um, I think it was four seventy-five at the top. Um, so that honestly really exceeded our expectations with that stock. We obviously did very well off the back of it. But a lesson for me is probably selling your winners a bit too early. We definitely were taking profits along the way. We made a lot of money on it, but we obviously didn't sell it all out at the top. So a big lesson for me there was the importance of letting your winners run and selling your losers. Honestly, it's it's often counterintuitive to inherent psychology where you want to quickly take profits and double down on your losers because they seem cheap. But honestly, that's the quickest way to poor returns. And doing the opposite of that is um, something that I know a lot of great investors will tell you you need to do. So um, that did well. Then <laughs> that stock last year traded all the way down from 4.75 to 35 cents. So thankfully we weren't too caught up with that. Um, and then we've reinitiated the position um, more recently as we see the business become profitable and um, revenue growth accelerate. And we're still really bullish on that one. Another really interesting one on the winner's side is um, our listeners might recall a company that used to be listed on the ASX called Animoca Brands. It was in the crypto space. It was a game developer and it was pioneering NFTs in the video gaming space. These are non-fungible tokens. Um, when so, did you invest in that? So we invested when it was listed, which was in 2019, uh, 2018 and 2019. And we invested um, at about 10 to 20 cents. And the market cap of the company at that level was about $150 million. The ASX couldn't get their head around crypto. They really struggled with the disclosure, with the accounting when it comes to crypto. You know, these businesses often hold tokens and it's a very different um, financial reporting challenge, I guess, compared to more typical companies. So the ASX actually kicked them off the stock exchange um, and made them delist at the start of 2020. So we obviously weren't happy with this outcome. We were forced to write the position to zero. So we wrote it down from 18 cents at the time to zero. Lo and behold, the crypto industry goes on an absolute run. And this guy, uh, this company, which has a fantastic founder, starts doing you know, a great job and speaking to a lot of big international investors, they then raised capital, I think in 2020 at a billion dollar valuation. Oh my God. They then raised capital six months later at a $2.2 billion valuation US. And then finally, at the start of 2022, last year, they raised capital, hundreds of millions of dollars at a... Um, Valuation of US $5 billion and we sold our position for $4.50. Oh 
<laughs> down from the 15 cent odd entry price um, in 2022. We sold our whole position at $4.50. And I'm not trying to claim that we're the smartest people in the room here. We got very lucky. Like if it was listed, we would have sold out obviously far earlier than that. But um, that's just a really interesting one because I think it's the, the biggest winner for one of our funds. Uh, we made a 30x return on it. Uh, but it was actually extremely lucky at the end of the day that it got delisted. We wrote it to zero, but then it ended up being the biggest winner. So that's kind of a hilarious story. Um, What's happening with it now? Just because crypto is obviously... Yeah, it's of- not one that I follow as closely anymore. We're obviously exited the position. Um, I think, look, the company operationally is still going well, but we saw the crypto winter that happened last year. So um, shares that trade in like, you know... It's still unlisted, um, but shares that trade in the grey market are definitely trading below um, where that capital raising occurred at the start of 2022. Can you take us through a loser and what you've learnt from that loss-making position? Absolutely. Um, on on the crypto theme, um, we also um, in 2019 invested in a Bitcoin miner. Um, this is when Bitcoin was sub $10,000. Um, unlisted or listed? Unlisted but it did list. So um, Iris Energy, fantastic management team. We first invested at a valuation of about US $24, $25 million. That go on, went on to do many more unlisted rounds at much higher valuations, which we also participated in. Um, and then ultimately in 2021, they listed on the NASDAQ for a US $1.5 billion valuation. So credit to the management team. They did an amazing job growing the business over that time frame. However, their listing coincided with the peak in the Bitcoin price. So one week before their IPO, Bitcoin peaked at $67,000, They listed one week later. And then unfortunately, the trajectory of the share price for the next year was down only in one direction and it went from $28 a share to about just $1 a share like huge decline Um, but look that again was completely correlated to the Bitcoin price last year which fell from 67 68,000 to just above 15,000 at the low so these kind of stocks and it's the same with miners when they're linked to a commodity price sometimes you are at the whim of the commodity price at the end of the day So obviously we had a loss on that position, but thankfully it's rallied really hard this year. Um, It's up over 400% this year. But yeah, it's it's not back to obviously the all-time highs because 400% off a low base, you need to go up many hundreds of percents with, you know, arithmetic to get back to um, that. But it's actually one that I can call out. I think your next question is going to be what's an interesting stock over the next five years. Mm. Um, This is one that I do believe... If you have a positive view on the Bitcoin price um, longer term, and it's going to continue to be highly volatile, but if you do have a long-term positive view on the Bitcoin price, you want to have exposure to the picks and shovels of the industry, which is companies like this, like Iris Energy and and others that are listed in the US. Do Um, you have a positive view on the Bitcoin price? I personally do. I think it's going to continue to be volatile, but the reason why I think it's interesting is it's obviously been created to have the characteristics of something that can be a perfect store of value, i.e. a money supply. So if you think about history, back in the day, civilizations have used different things of money, whether it's shells, artifacts, cattle, etc., something that they could trade to represent value. And the, and the five properties of money um, that these things need to satisfy is that it needs to be divisible, uh, durable, 
recognisable, portable and scarce. Scarce is very important, so you can't inflate the money supply easily. And then the market decided that the best form of money back in the day was precious metals because it satisfied these criteria. And of the precious metals, gold was typically selected as the best form of money uh, because its annual supply inflation is sub 2%. So the total supply of gold goes up by less than 2% per year. So that's why we had the gold standard. We had the US dollar pegged to the gold price for a period of time. And then we had obviously the gold-backed currencies in paper form. What happened though was that the central reserves printed more currency than their gold reserves could justify, which culminated in the 1971 Nixon shock. And we had the de-pegging of the US dollar from the gold standard. And so, you know, we have these challenges now with fiat currencies where governments, obviously they're centralised, governments can print money, Mm. do other things and debase currencies over time. There's a risk of that. So Bitcoin was obviously envisaged to have all these properties that makes it the perfect form of money. And the real, the, the key to that is there only being 21 million Bitcoins that are ever going to exist. The supply is fixed. Um, and so if you think about price dynamics and supply and demand, it's kind of the perfect supply scenario for price to improve over time if you have growing demand and growing adoption, which obviously there is. Why invest in like the picks and shovels play rather than Bitcoin if you are bullish on the outlook for Bitcoin? The risk reward asymmetry is far more attractive and just like um, mining equities go up more than the commodity price, it's the same with the Bitcoin miners. They have leverage, right? So the Bitcoin price is up maybe uh, 80% this year, but all the Bitcoin miners are up three to 400% because they've got operating leverage in their business model. That means that their top line can accelerate quickly with the Bitcoin price, but they've got a fixed cost base. So their earnings can grow substantially. So it's that dynamic that we see with equities, um, which can outperform currencies, but on both the upside and the downside. If you take all that into account and you take a five-year view um, and you think that Bitcoin can be higher today, uh, sorry, in five years than it is today, and there are some very bullish outlooks out there. You know, people like Kathy Wood have put a million-dollar price target on Bitcoin by 2030. And look, I'm not saying I subscribe to all of these um, forecasts, but they exist and really respected market wizards like Paul Tudor Jones. Um, He's even said things as well like, you know, there's only one asset that I will hold and never trade because he's a a trader by nature. Um, And he said, that's Bitcoin. Um, And it's because of the fixed supply. And he said, it's also because there's so much uh, intellectual human capital going into the space. He said, there's um, our best and brightest young people are going into crypto and Web3 and that huge intellectual capital is going to create amazing innovation and productivity and all those kind of things. So the view is, I guess, that the risk-reward asymmetry is so interesting that you can't afford for it to at least not be a small part of your portfolio. Certainly doesn't have to be a large part. It's going to be inherently volatile, but it's got such an interesting asymmetric risk-reward upside that it's hard not to have an allocation to it. And then, of course, of course, there's also the ETFs that may get approved later this year, which is going to be huge, I think, for the Bitcoin price if, you know, it's easier to facilitate institutional ownership through things like ETFs. We're an emerging companies fund, so we're always looking for, you know, exciting new ideas. Things like RS Energy provide a lot of asymmetric upside. 
Iris has a fantastic management team and also it trades at about a third of the multiple of some of its peers like Riot and Marathon. So it's one that we're happy to have a position in. Thank you so much, Jess. I really enjoyed this chat today. That was absolutely incredible, surprising, engaging, insightful, everything that you would want from a podcast. That's Thank very you again. kind and I enjoyed it too. So thanks very much. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Regal's Jess Farr-Jones as much as I did. If you did, please give it a like. Remember to sign up for free at livewiremarkets.com where we're uploading fresh content like this every single day. See you next time.